there's something I love and hate about myself. I'm like really competitive. Like last summer, I was hiking in Zion National Park with some of my friends, one of whom is this girl, Emma. We decided to do this water hike in a canyon called the Narrows. And I had just learned to swim like two years before that. So the hike was really hard for me. I was terrified the entire time. At one point, my boyfriend turns to look at me and he goes, come on, Misha, Emma can do it. And I just snapped. And I was like, why don't you just marry Emma then? Which is a weird question to ask because we're not even married. But he wasn't saying like, why are you weak? Emma is so strong. He was saying, if Emma can do it, anyone can do it. He was encouraging me. But that's not how I heard it. What I heard was, you're not as good as Emma. And all of a sudden, in a rage, I zipped past everyone. It was like a blur, like superhero blur. And I get all the way to this giant, exquisite waterfall. And I look around, and I realize that I'm stuck, and that I'm completely alone. The whole trip was about spending time with people that I love, but I ruined that. But, 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 that same competitiveness is how I got to where I am, how I'm hosting this show. I love my coworkers, but I'd be lying if I wasn't trying to be better than all of them. It drives me, and I love that I'm driven. But sometimes when I walk into a room, I don't really see people. I just see traits and I wonder what I can be. I don't really connect. I compete. It's the best and the worst. I can see that. For Reza Aslan, his double-edged sword is like this disdain for authority. Like he told me he can't even read the instructions for IKEA furniture. So his wife reads them to him because he trusts her. And this feeling towards authority, he can trace it all the way back to one moment. My name is Reza Aslan. And what are you best known for? (laughs) What am I best known for? Causing trouble, I guess. Over the last uh, couple of years that we lived in Iran, so like 78, 79, before we left, um, we lived in northern Iran, which is kind of where the upper middle class and wealthier Iranians live. If you want to know what a fairly well-off apartment in northern Tehran looks like, just go to an apartment in Westwood. It's the exact same thing. Persian carpets, fruit and nut bowls everywhere, the smell of rose water, a lot of gold. In fact, the apartment in Westwood was built to look exactly like the apartment in Tehran. All the kids would play in the alleyways and we would do games like... You know, we would play kind of the Iranian version of cops and robbers and uh, and tag and chase and hide and seek. I guess I was maybe six years old at that point, six or seven, close to seven. And I had another friend who was my age as well. Our favorite thing to do was to play chess. He had this really cool portable chess set, small 
carved, uh, kind of roughly carved chess pieces. And it and it's um and it's not even black and white. It's kind of wood colored and brown stained, right? And and that's how you would know the difference between the two. We started playing with each other, and this just kind of became our regular habit. You know, we would meet uh, down there after school, and he'd set up the chessboard, and uh, he'd be white, I'd be black, and we would just play. Always, yeah. But it was always this game that you thought that smart people played, that grown-ups played, um, uh, people who were mature or who's like, knowledge and experience was different than mine. People that I wanted to kind of be like. It's it's strange because this story itself is one that has always existed in the kind of dark corners of my brain. In fact, I, it occurred to me um, on the way to the studio that I had never told this story to my wife. And I think partly that has to do with what happened next, which was this massive, dramatic revolution that uh, overturned the the government of the Shah, um, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, and transformed Iran to this day. I have these images right there. It's almost like a slideshow in my brain, um, these frozen moments of the apartment and the alleyway. And I don't think in any way, shape or form we understood exactly what was happening or what they were protesting. I mean, obviously, we would hear the slogans. We understood what democracy meant. We understood what freedom meant. We knew what those things meant. We uh, understood that you know, that the Shah was uh, a bad guy um, and that um, he was corrupt and that he was, um, you know, he was hurting Iranians. Yeah, I remember, I think it must have been either January or February of 79, so really close to the end, really close to, to, the, to the time in which the Shah fled the country and for all intents and purposes, the revolution had won. But before the, the post-revolutionary chaos, I went down to you know, meet my friend as usual and, and to play chess and he wasn't there. He wasn't in the alley and I was I looked everywhere for him and he wasn't around. And I remember asking people where he was and they said that, you know, he's he's home. Um, and I thought, well, maybe he's sick. I don't know. Maybe I should go and, and check to see if he's OK. You know, when it went to his building and took the elevator up to to his floor and knocked on his door and there he was. And I walked in and I was like, where where are you? What's going on? Are you feeling OK? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. And I said, well, you know, let's, let's play chess. And he said, I don't do that anymore. And I was like, what? What do you mean? Like, we've been playing chess all this time. Like, what, why are you not allowed that something happened? And he said, I'm not going to play a game in which 
the purpose is to sacrifice the pawns to save a king. I won't play a game in which the whole point is to sacrifice the pawns to save a king. A king who does nothing. A king that doesn't move. A king that has no power. It was like having a lifetime of political education hit you all at once. I was left speechless. A month, two months after this moment, my parents woke me up before dawn and said, get dressed. And the next thing I knew, we were at the airport, along with tens of thousands of other people trying to get out. We made it to security. The security guard opened up all our bags and took all of our money, took all of our jewels, took all of our valuables because he could. And when my dad complained, he said, well, you're more than welcome to stay here with them. And then we got on a plane and suddenly we're in Oklahoma with nothing. So everything that happened before that moment is just a fog now. But over the last, you know, 40 years (laughs) in which I've tried uh, as an adult to kind of go back and, and make sense of that time and to try to figure out what kind of um, effect those experiences have had on who I am as a person, I keep coming back to this moment. I'm not going to play a game in which the purpose is to sacrifice the pawns to save a king. It was almost like it was rooted into my brain that the problem in the world is the authority structure. That the problem in the world is the king, the president, the prime minister. That it's the person that the rest of us are supposed to protect. The person that the rest of us are supposed to submit ourselves to. The the person that the rest of us are supposed to sacrifice for. That that's the person who's the enemy. And the good guys are the pawns. As I think back to my... Career, And as I think back to just sort of my philosophy, my worldview, the way that I see um, my society and, and my responsibility to the world, that's it. That's the foundation right there. He is a religious scholar, a best-selling author. His books include No God But God and Zealot. Please welcome back to the program, Reza Aslan. Hello. Said, hold on, hold on a second, Reza. He says it's a, a Muslim country problem. He says that in Somalia... Yeah, but that's... Yeah, and that's actually empirically, factually incorrect. It's a Central it's an African book. Now, I want to clarify, you're a Muslim, so why did you write a book about the founder of Christianity? Well, to be clear, I am a scholar of religions with four degrees, including one in the New Testament and fluency in Biblical Greek, who has been studying the origins of Christianity for two decades, who also just happens to be a Muslim. Part of the success that I've had certainly in the media is being either unaware of or just simply unconcerned with the rules uh, that uh, are sort of 
given to you top down when you're a guest on a news program. Because in my mind, I just think to myself, wait, what's to break? Like, who takes these rules seriously? That's benefited me. At the same time, you know, there have been moments in my career in which this sort of flaunting of those rules has actually hurt me, you know? I mean, uh, you know, quite famously, uh, I referred to the president of the United States uh, on Twitter as a piece of shit. The, the, the argument that I was told a lot uh, by people who actually agreed <laughs> with that statement was there are consequences to you saying it, not because the statement is not true, but because you're supposed to have respect for the office of the president. That idea blows my mind. Like, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? You have to have respect for uh, the office? I mean, who cares about the office? It's the person who maintains the office. And if that person is deserving of respect, you give them respect. And if that person doesn't deserve respect, you don't give them respect. This idea that the office itself, the institution itself, the abstract authority structure in and of itself requires respect is inconceivable to me. Like I honestly, even sitting here, uh, voicing that notion, I, 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 it makes no sense. Why would that be a thing? Um, and uh, and you know, obviously, I've you know I've faced consequences for for uh, refusing to accept that that principle. You can learn more about Reza Aslan and find links to his work at rezaaslan.com. Thanks for listening to Tell Them I Am. I'm Misha Youssef. This episode of Tell Them I Am was sound designed by Arwen Nix and written by Arwen Nix and me. Mary Knopf is my producer. And don't tell James Kim, but I invited her over to my house and not him. Arwen Nix is our editor. Valentino Rivera and Sean Corey Campbell are our engineers. Our beautiful music is by David Leinard. You can also find these really cool illustrations of all our guests as the episodes release. Thanks to Emin Ahmed for those. You should really see them. Follow me or Emin on Instagram. Find me at Misha Youssef. Our beautiful series tile art is by Elizabeth Goodspeed. This podcast was originally a production of LA Studios. Now presented by Higher Ground Audio and Spotify. See you next week. <laughs>